Welcome to episode 128 of Doing the Work with Math and Black. Today is New Camarada Opera Day. If you're listening to this on the day that it comes out, on Thursday, May 2nd, then tonight is opening night of New Camarada Opera's production of The Rape of Lucretia. We've been chatting this up in the intros, talking about it for a little while, so I'm sure you're all familiar with what's going on. But we're very excited this week to welcome tenor Eric Bagger on the production to talk about that show. Um, It ends up being a really cool conversation. We have a lot of fun talking. I had never met Eric before. I had been talking with the people at New Camarada trying to decide who would be a great guest to have on the show to highlight that production of The Rape of Lucretia, and everyone said, oh, you have to sit down and talk to Eric. And after our conversation, I completely understood why that was. We're like kind of the same person you'll hear us talk about it a little bit um eric is a amazing guitar player a really cool guy a great opera administrator an amazing musician and just like a a person whose heart is sort of in line with where where my heart is in terms of music and art and art making and people it was just really fun to be able to sit down with someone and talk so openly and so honestly about the things that interest me and find out that another person is interested by them as well eric is playing the male chorus in this new camarada opera production of The Rape of Lucretia. Um, and we, we end up talking a lot about that production. We talk a lot about the, the musical aspects of it. We talk about administratively what New Camarada is trying to do, about B. Goodwin's vision for this particular show. Um, and it's it's really fun. I, I highly recommend going and seeing it. I will be going tonight to the opening night with a couple of friends, so I hope to see you there. But there's a few other opportunities for you to see that show as well. You can hop over to New Camarada Opera's website to find uh, more information on the show and to also get tickets for that performance. Doing the work with Math and Black is powered by Passion Planner. I talk about this all the time. Artists, craftspeople, hustlers, we need a way to keep all of our ideas organized and to keep our lives straight in ways that make sense, are tangible, and can be useful in uh, make, making something clean out of the mess of our brains. For me, Passion Planner has been that system for a long time, and I am now an official representative of the Passion Planner brand, which I consider a high honor and a very cool thing for many reasons. First of all, it makes me feel real good. Second of all, it allows me to pass some cool things on to you, the listeners of this podcast. Um, If you use the referral code that I have posted in the show notes of this podcast, you can get 10% off your first purchase of any Passion Planner uh, product. Um, I recommend the small size, which has just been uh, reintroduced through the Passion Planner website, and that is available for pre-order right now for their academic year calendars, which go from August to July. You could be saying, but Mathen, it's April. Why would I want to buy a new planning system right now? Well, first of all, whatever planning system you use is not as good as the Passion Planner system. Look, I don't want to talk uh, shade or anything, throw shade or anything, but it might very well be a true thing. And now is the perfect time to hop on board with a new academic planner running from 2018 to 2019. I know the word academic makes you think that it's lined up with a school year, and though that is technically technically true, this is the exact same layout as the traditional passion planner. It just runs from August to July. I'm going to be switching over from my uh, pro size red planner over to a compact size, which has been my favorite A4, right around A4 size for a long time. So 
If you're looking for something like this, if you're thinking about making the switch, I highly recommend popping down into the show notes, clicking on the referral link, popping over and making an investment in your future for something as cool that you know I love. I loved this product before I was affiliated with Passion Planner and it's just a really cool thing to see that happening now. A couple other cool things coming up quite soon. Next weekend, the Little Opera Theater of New York is putting on a production of Owen Wingrave, the famed and often neglected uh, Benjamin Britten opera. Um, I have never seen Owen Wingrave before, and I'm really excited. The devotees of the show will understand how much I love Benjamin Britten, but also two of my favorite singers are going to be in this production. Bernard Holcomb, who I think still holds the record for being on this show the most times uh, is going to be singing in the production as well as Matthew Curran who I did a production at Opera Southwest uh, with years and years ago and haven't seen him in forever very excited to get to see both of those powerhouses kill it on May 9th If I'm not mistaken, that show goes up a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so it's like May 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th, so that's all next weekend. There are still tickets available to that. You can go over to Little Opera Theater of New York's website and check that stuff out. I I spoke to Bernard this morning, and he said that the show is just very powerful, very dramatically exciting, and so if you're going to go, get thyself prepared. It's going to be a blast. I will be seeing that on opening night as well, and I'm still looking for people to go with... Uh, actually have an extra ticket so if anybody wants to reach out to me about going to uh, to that show next week please feel free to do that always lots of great opera stuff going on we are in the middle of new york opera fest so go over to new york opera fests or new york opera alliances websites to check out all of the cool things happening there um but as of today go see the rape of lucretia this opera is spectacular and it's especially important to sort of deal with these ideas and the 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 thought processes around sexual assault and the removal of of a a victim's voice i don't know i think in in our day and the time we're living in now, it's very important to meditate on these things, to catharsize through them, and come out on the other side better people. So, without any further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy episode 128, Doing the Work with Eric Bagger. She lives in the Ansonia building, mm-hmm. and she has a few rooms in, in her own apartment in the Ansonia building that she also rents out. Wow. She's like the only person in the Antonia that they allow to do that with. It's crazy. That's really interesting. I actually, I don't know, like, how long have you lived in New York? I came to school here, so probably about, I think it's been 14, 15, 14 years. So you've been here for a hot second. Yeah. I like, you know how you get to, you get used to a neighborhood and you sort of know what all the words mean and yeah. like the history of them and the buildings and whatnot. Totally. I was in Chicago for almost a decade and like, sort of felt like I knew all of that stuff uh-huh. and I know nothing about this area so there's like there's like an Ansonia court right over here as well and I've seen that oh, word a couple of times yeah. and it's like I, I have no idea I'm sure that was like a person someplace sure. that did something and did something <laughs> crazy but I don't know any of those things yeah I haven't looked into the name uh, it's funny but you so you went to college at the Brooklyn College right mm-hmm. exactly. studying music for your masters and Both. your and undergrad, undergrad. Mm-hmm. what was that like it was great I mean I when I decided that I wanted to be an operatic uh, vocal major, I went and shopped around for teachers. Mm-hmm. And uh, the teacher that I decided on after I took a few lessons with people, 
his name was Thomas Coltice, and he was teaching at Manas and also at uh, Brooklyn College. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up going to Brooklyn College because it was way cheaper. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> way, way, way cheaper. It's basically the difference between going in debt or not going in debt. I know so, that game. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, you know, I was four years later, I was still happy working with him. So I stayed for my master's and yeah. also, you know, the price is right. <laughs> oh, we all know that game. Plus you also, you know, you hear about people who stay at places like that mm-hmm. for the opportunities that they're given in the same situations. I traveled way too much. I moved oh, yeah. and moved and moved between all of my schools. And I like, we all have our reasons for doing those things. But I, I always thought it would be kind of cool, like to stay at the same institution mm-hmm. and have such a long-term relationship with your teacher. And as long as you're getting the other things that you need, that seems to be like a, a very fulfilling way to do things. Did you find it to be that? It was, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was a long, uh, it was a six-year, yeah. you know, uh, teacher-student relationship, and it was uh, wonderful because we really like developed our own type of language in the in in lessons, and uh, didn't have to really work around uh, have that as an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, so we could really get to the technical work and the repertoire work. Um, but I think that in, in Brooklyn College is great. It's fantastic. They have a lot of excellent resources. They just built a new. Uh, performing Arts Center, the Talent oh, Center for the Performing yeah? Arts, mm-hmm. which I'm a little jealous that it's up now. <laughs> <laughs> that it wasn't there when you were. Exactly. Yeah. But it's beautiful. I, but just like any any school, you know, it's it's what you make of it. The resources are there and you can either take advantage of them or, or not. Now, I think that's super true at all levels of institutions. Yeah. I When I started, I like I couldn't pay for school myself and I wasn't going to take out student loans. So I went to a tiny school in Arkansas where my family's from. Oh, yeah. That there's like three opera singers out of the entire <laughs> history of the school who've come out of there. And it's funny because like you're absolutely right. Yeah. Every institution is what institution is what you make of it and finding ways to get the opportunities you're looking for. I mm-hmm. see, it seems to be more important than the actual institution that you go to. I agree. Unless yeah. you get that Juilliard stamp on your face. Right. Well, that I'm sure that helps a lot. I'm sure, it helps a lot. <laughs> yeah, or any of the Ivy League stamps definitely help. No, that's that's yeah. actually a real true thing. I wonder about that sometimes and how it changes uh, how it changes perceptions. But skill is always earned, no matter mm-hmm. where you are. Absolutely. So I'm really excited for us to talk today because yeah, it seems to be like we have a lot of similar interests. <laughs> so things just going to be exciting. First of all, we have to talk about the guitar. Yeah, I yeah, didn't... I see your guitar in the corner there. Yeah, th- that's my ovation <laughs> that I've had forever, my acoustic. I've got a Telecaster hanging out under Ooh, the couch right here that also nice. makes me happy. How long have you been playing? Uh, guitar was like my first instrument. I, I started when I was nine. Ooh, love um, it. I'm not a prodigy, or I wasn't a prodigy or anything like that. But uh, um, yeah, now, you know, there's a while that I thought that I was going to go into jazz guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a while that I thought I was going to go into classical guitar. Um, but basically... Uh, I started taking guitar lessons when I was nine and then uh, started writing my own songs. And uh, I recorded myself once on a little four track recorder and listened back. And it was before my voice had changed. Um, and it was this squealy little thing. And I was like, <laughs> what? That's what I sound like? Yeah. <laughs> well, I better take voice lessons. And so <laughs> my, my parents were like, well, we, there was a, a visiting artist um program for private voice lessons uh through my middle school Mm -hmm. which i was very fortunate to be able to have the opportunity to do that and uh started taking classical voice lessons when i was 11 and uh i was a boy alto and uh 
So that's how I got into that. It was through guitar. Yeah, that's really interesting because yeah. mine was the exact like other way around it. Oh yeah. I, I was so, I was such a weird kid. Like I never really put together songs. Like I think I've maybe written like four songs in yeah. my entire <laughs> life. And I'm sure like if a if a if my therapist were to hear that, uh-huh. she'd be like, yeah, that's because you're afraid of being terrible. But <laughs> I was always that weird kid just playing all of the chords, like just always playing around with the interiors of that. Oh sure. But it never got me close to classical music. It, even with the singing stuff, I was singing mm-hmm. in rock bands all through high school and college cool. which ended would end up helping me out later but i think that's so cool that like the guitar playing moved you in that way too were you playing for more of a classical style when you started no i mean from the beginning it was like you know basics with a steel string acoustic it was all pink floyd and yeah i mean i was kind of a geek i like <laughs> i had like a james taylor songbook and yeah. i would like, go through like fire and rain see i love that and, like, i Carolina had the Eric clapton unplugged songbook not yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> The Eric Clapton un- unplugged the the cassette tape was what we used to listen to in my mom's minivan on the way to guitar lessons. That like, album is insane, right? Oh, it's so good. Uh, Broken Hearted on that is amazing. Mm-hmm. Layla on that is amazing. Layla is incredible. Like that's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. When I got to my masters, I started a a little band with a another singer who had done. Um, she was like a spectacular classical soprano, oh, yeah. but had also sung a lot of jazz in her undergrad program. What was it called? The Gold The Gold Company, I think, is what it was called. I know that is also a mm-hmm. a. Uh, uh, Game of Thrones thing yeah. so it's, it's not that I'm just pulling it out one of the schools in Michigan what I cannot remember Jennifer Clancy is her name now she's still a spectacular musician um, but we would like do old mashups of like super new Kesha songs and then clapping <laughs> tunes and everything to oh, play the guitar. Awesome. because like his guitar playing him and Stevie Ray Vaughan were like so incredibly impactful on me growing up I'm sure James Taylor was the same thing for you absolutely well yeah definitely Stevie and, mm-hmm. and Eric that's why I'm a Strat guy I have a Strat ah, now mm-hmm. surprised you don't have a Strat but I mean, Tilly's are great. <laughs> I played a Stratocaster all the time that I was actually playing guitar. Oh, yeah. When I left Wichita, Kansas to move to Chicago, I hadn't played electric guitar in ages. Uh-huh. So I kept my acoustic, sold all of my my electric equipment. So I sold my uh, my Stratocaster that I had mm-hmm. played. I think I bought that guitar when I was 14 years old. <laughs> nice. And then so like sold it, my amp and all my pedal yeah. board and stuff, and then felt the itch to play electric again. Absolutely. So maybe a couple, two years ago, maybe when I was in Chicago, I bought a Telecaster again. There's nothing beats that Tele the Telecaster. Twang, it's yeah. insane. Well, and you're a jazz guy too, so mm-hmm. I I got it not for the like rip roaring twanginess, but for that neck pickup jazz yeah, tone. Absolutely, it's so sick. Yeah, no, I mean, there's the telly is a really versatile instrument. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm really happy because I have the opportunity to play my electric in my wife's band. She's a singer songwriter. No, so I, every now and then, like when she does gigs i get to play in her band and pretend i'm a rock star oh that's so cool hey no pretending man it's inside of you right now oh yeah I got rock well, in my soul so the reason that i knew you were a guitar player was because you have one line in your bio about your neapolitan song oh yeah mm-hmm. which is like super cool i have known a couple of other guys who have like blended the classical guitar and uh, guitar and voice mm-hmm. world together andrew wakowski an amazing guy up in um wisconsin just a cool cool cat has done what did he call it he calls it uh, guns and rosen cat Cavalier. <laughs> That's awesome. Which is pretty funny. He does Aria's sort of thing. Yeah. How did you start working on that project? Um, I think it was, well, there was an uh, Italian guitarist that I was a really big fan of, still am. His name is Beppe Gambetta. Mm-hmm. Um, I first came into contact with him in Danbury, Connecticut. I'm from Connecticut originally, from the next town over, Newtown. Um, and uh, my father and I had heard about this event that was taking place at East Coast Music Mall, which is there in Danbury. And uh, Beppe Gambetta had this residency type thing there where he would basically 
do a quasi masterclass type mm-hmm. scenario. Uh, he was sponsored um, by Taylor or endorsed by Taylor. Um, and he released this album with the mandolin player uh, Carlo Alonso, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. It's called Serenata. Yeah. And it's just the two of them. Uh, and they're playing all these traditional um, Neapolitan songs. And uh, oh man, it's, it's like one of my favorite albums mm-hmm. of all time. And he's playing it on his tailor, and it, it 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 pairs so well with the mandolin. It's like this really nice, um, warm, rich sound that I uh, know it still has a plenty of nice, satisfying like steely treble. Um, but I, I grew up listening to that album as well, mm-hmm. and uh, eventually, you know, uh, I think it was in my junior year of undergrad, I was like, you know, I would love to do some of that. And uh, and sing it because some of the, so there's so much great stuff there so for tenor. So much beautiful music. And uh, and if I could accompany myself, so I ended up getting a tailor, <laughs> and uh, sort of uh, arranged my own songs, my own collection of about twelve songs. Yeah. And uh, they've been really handy because I play them, I play them when you know we don't have access to a piano or something like that. We did a, a performance with New Camerata Opera. Um, at the beginning of this season in uh, September for uh, something that was called Art After Dark. Mm-hmm. And it was um, co- coordinated by uh, the Affordable Art Fair. And they had approached us, asked if we could do, you know, some standard operatic hits a cappella, um, roaming around the entire fair where there, you know, there are 2000 people a night roam through there as yeah. well. Um, and amongst all the different little gallery booths that they have there uh, in two floors of the Metropolitan Pavilion. And so that was a big challenge for us to figure out how we we're going to do that, you know, unamplified mm-hmm. acapella operatic rep. In a way that still makes musical sense. Exactly. Right? It's and easy to just throw that up if you don't care, but to try to make something artful out of it, I'm sure that was very difficult. It was. So it what was. did you do? Well, we kind of split it up. We did some, you know, hits, you know, operatic choruses and things like that. Um, and then we we did some Neapolitan things and I would accompany people and then I did some things on my own. We did a, a three tenors version of O Sole Mio. Oh, that's lovely. And I played it on the guitar. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. So it's been handy for things like that. Um, and I played a few sets on my own as well, but I just love the repertoire and I love, you know, still having the opportunity to have guitar in my life. It's, it's important, right? I, I think it's very important, you can tell if you've ever heard me talk about anything, that it's important to have your brain functioning in like many different ways. Absolutely. I know that that probably doesn't lead to as much mastery of, of one thing, but at the same time, it leads for a fuller life. And I find that like all of those other interests sort of inform the other absolutely, and allow you to grow your brain in ways that it maybe wouldn't always have the possibility to do. I still do the same thing. I, I teach guitar lessons as oh, well, fantastic. which is really, really fun, yeah. especially because I teach young children. And so it's like great. being able to see their brains move together in that way. But I'm always trying to futz around with cool guitar things. I've never been able to find a way to do it quite to the way that you have, but I'm, I've been playing around with these uh, Benjamin Britten folk songs wow. for forever. And there's this whole s- chunk of them that yeah. were written for classical guitar I'm not that good so I haven't learned those but I've been working on arranging some of the other ones for electric guitar whoa which is like real bonkers and also kind of I want to hear that so well and you will in yeah. 20 years when the project comes out <laughs> <laughs> yeah but it, it's cool to see the way that that stuff the way that that stuff happens so with like with the Neapolitan songs you're dealing with 
generally some more traditional styles of harmony was it difficult to work on those arrangements or did you find it to be a little more naturalistic as the as the tonalities moved i had to be a little i had to be kind of persistent mm -hmm. you know it would take a while it wouldn't it, it's not like you know figuring out a pop song or, yes. or a folk song um there are definitely strange harmonic things that happen like particularly i have some um tosti songs yeah and uh those in particular you know there's a lot of harmonically interesting things happening that you just have to be stubborn about until it's like because there, there are ways you can sort of do it very basically and it's, but it's not quite the it's same not the same it's not right the same. looking yeah. for the depth of art making and in, in the texture of mm -hmm. guitar has always been an exceedingly difficult problem for, for me to come across but because i'm a quitter i uh don't try as much as you <laughs> did <laughs> well hey if you're not careful i'm gonna rig these mics at the end of this and make you play one of those things for <laughs> us we'll see yeah 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 no, I, so who are you listening to these days guitar wise um these days guitar wise um i've been listening to a lot of things that my wife has been listening to. Mm -hmm. um, Talk to me a little bit more about the music. I want to circle back to this question, but I also want to know, tell me a little bit more contextually the kinds of music that your wife makes. Well, you know, she really, growing up, she really liked uh, Tori Amos. Oh, who did it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so she really, I think, you know, she, she plays piano mm -hmm. um, and, and writes songs sort of in a similar, of a similar, similar ilk. Um, now we're both really into Jenny Lewis um, so I just heard her new album just came out. Yeah, it's right? so good. Yeah, so I've been listening a little bit. It's strange that sort of like countryside yeah. of me, I'm starting to like experience a little bit more. But it's never where I put my attention. The album's real good. Yeah, I love it. I've only perused a little bit. I should go back and spend a little more time on it. I highly recommend it. Yeah, no, I think she's fantastic. And I mean, I've, I've always been a big fan of Rilo Kylie. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's sort of been playing more electric with with bella my wife so it, shout out that instagram <laughs> yeah 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 exactly it's uh at isabella marriott that's it marriott like the hotel mm -hmm. um but uh but yeah so so basically sort of rilo kylie-esque i think yeah um that's the that's sort of the style she's going for when she plays what sort of format so she we've got her on keys she's on keys electric. and vocals i'm playing guitar um and then we have um uh, Dave Lopez, uh, who's our friend who's playing drums, uh, and we also have our, our old college roommate, uh, Paul Sent McCloskey, uh, who is now living in Philly, but he comes in for gigs. He's on bass. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And then we have uh, one of my NCO colleagues, Eva Parr. She joined us for our last gig at Pete's Candy Store. She, uh, she sang backup, and that was a lot of fun. And her uh, boyfriend, Derek Box, who is our uh, resident sound engineer for NCO, uh, played drums. Because our, our our drummer Dave couldn't make that gig, but uh, Derek is an incredible drummer. Oh man, you're so. making me so jealous, and this is like so exciting. I love I love it when like you can put these things together and be mm -hmm. playing in different ways, but actually at like a high level. That's so so cool. So how often do you guys play together? Um, it's tricky because you know there's so much uh, stuff going on here in the city that, mm -hmm. that, that you don't want to overbook because you still want to have a decent draw. Um, there are so many bands and so many singer songwriters and the competition is really stiff but um i'd say in general it's about one gig a, one gig a month yeah, yeah yeah um and uh and we've been recording as well it's averaged out to be a, an ep of about three to four songs yeah. a year or so uh so she's got a 
a nice collection on Spotify. That's sick. <laughs> yeah. What's what's the handle on Spotify? Oh, it's just Isabella Marriott. Love it. So, yeah. Well, now I'm going to have to go spend the rest of the afternoon listening to all of that. Yeah, music. check it out. <laughs> this is just so exciting. I, I really do love it when the like classical and pop worlds collide. Absolutely. When, when you're playing lead in mm-hmm. that band, mm-hmm. do you find that your classical, like your classical bent towards music, and we'll talk way more about this, I'm sure, but the classical bent towards the way your brain functions, do you find that informing your lead playing? A little bit, um, at least in, in rehearsal styles. Mm-hmm. I should say practice styles because I always, I'm like, oh, we have band rehearsal. It's not band rehearsal, Eric. It's band practice. <laughs> it's, it's sort of that whole like culture. I have to switch gears a little bit. I hear bit. you. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll be in, in, in band practice. You know, we rehearse over here at the battalion. Often. Oh, yeah. yeah uh-huh. In Carroll Gardens. And um, uh, I'll often be like, well, you know, I have this ostinato here and, you know, I really want to bring it out a little bit because I feel like it fits over texturally what you've got going on there in in the chords on the keyboard. And uh, uh, everybody knows what I'm talking about, but it's definitely a different type of link. Yeah. When we're using the nerd terms. Exactly. I'm I'm in the exact same boat. No, it's it's strange because I I, we have so many things in common and we have so many sort of like similarities in Mm -hmm. our music making and our playing things we're involved in. I assume that you're like a crazy nut for modern music the same way that I am. Absolutely. But I realize that may not be true. Okay, so it is. So that's always what I find to be interesting with my guitar playing Mm -hmm. and that sort of like tonality shift that happened in the 1940s and 50s and then what's been happening continually since Mm -hmm. then that really changed the way that i think about making pop music because it's it's like that that tonality has gotten into my blood and brings out a little word so i'm wondering how close to bjork you are and where where on the scale (laughs) from a uh, question i've never been asked (laughs) no but it's true you know like thinking in terms of like where on the scale from eric clapton to bjork are you living as a guitarist? Yeah, as a guitarist. I'd say pretty conservative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I could try to push her more, <laughs> push my wife more into the direction of Bjork. That'd be pretty cool. What's her musical background? Uh, so we met in school. She was a Very voice cool. major at Brooklyn oh, College. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so she she also, she was a soprano. She still is a soprano, but mm-hmm. she's not doing it uh, as much classically these days. Yeah, we've all got limited time and have to figure exactly. out where to put all of our attention. So it seems like you, you've got all these very cool things going on, but you are putting a great deal of attention into the classical music world Absolutely. in terms of voice performance mm-hmm. and administration. When did that when did that shift happen? And when first of all, when did you have to make the decision to go that way versus the classical guitar route? Um, well, I decided to make the that particular shift between being a guitar major or being a voice major mm-hmm. my senior year of high school. Was that difficult? Once I made the decision, I knew it was the right decision, yeah, yeah. and it it was super easy from there there on. Um, it was it was sort of like I I was really into theater, mm-hmm. but I wasn't necessarily super into musical theater. Right, I mean, I had been right. in a bunch of musicals, but the genre didn't speak to me um, as much as opera did. But I I loved being in in straight plays. I, I was in Diary of Anne Frank in high school. Yeah, um, Our Town. I got to be George Gibbs. There it was great. Um, but uh. I knew that opera was the right choice because uh, I could have legitimate theater and uh, classical mm-hmm. music be part of my life. And uh, and sort of like what we were talking about before, um, I philosophically was attracted to opera because it was the culmination of many different mediums. Right. So I could be 
as well-rounded of an individual as I could, I think, um, focusing on opera, uh, because you'd ha- you have, you know, as an opera singer, you have to be a, an historian, you know, a musical nerd, um, and, and, you know, great, uh, precise musician, a great technician, mm-hmm. <laughs> all these things. And, you know, an, an, an actor. Um, so I was, I've always taken great comfort that in order to be a great operatic artist, you have to, um, not be closed minded. Mm-hmm. You can't specialize too much, um, as an individual. It's not the, the days of park and bark are over. You're not mm-hmm. just a technician. You have to be a well-rounded artist and therefore you have to be a well-rounded individual. God, I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. I love that. How inspiring. <laughs> so how long were you playing the uh, like the the professional singer game before New Camerata Opera came into your life? Um, New Camerata Opera came in uh, around March 2016. Mm-hmm. You were already um, done with school. I was already done with school. Uh, yeah, I, I, I finished my master's in 2011. Yeah. And my undergrad in 2009. Um, so for those five years in between um i was doing lots of performing in a lot of the other you know new york opera alliance companies the small companies i did a lot with bronx opera uh and with dell'arte opera ensemble um you know utopia um opera noir of new york opera oggi you name it like all these um great uh small companies um and i was able to have a lot of stage time which i think is crucial to valuable exactly um and then in 2015, like many singers do, I went to Germany mm-hmm. for an audition tour. I was managed at the time and they got me some really great auditions in uh, these great houses, which was fantastic to sing on stage in these wonderful places that were built for operatic yeah. singing. Um, because you don't really, it's kind of rare here in the city. Yeah. You have the Met. And what else do you have that was built for opera? You it's know? true. It's the same way in Chicago. You've got the Lyric Opera Chicago. If you're lucky, you get to perform in the Auditorium Theater, but there's, yeah. like nobody does that anymore. Yeah, really. Uh, but that's like it. Yeah, it's crazy. But but there's obviously tons of opportunities mm-hmm. in Germany. And they actually hold the house auditions in the house. Yeah. So that was fantastic. and had a couple of great um, leads on things. But, um, you know, it's extremely competitive because ev- all the singers from the entire globe oh yeah go there um and as many people will tell you it's like really hard to just go there for two months and expect mm-hmm. to find work you kind of have to um pretty much move over there and oh, be it's there true. yeah you know and um but it was a very very eye-opening trip um i not only for the the audition opportunities but also because i went and saw a lot of opera and experienced sort of the vibes of a bunch of different houses. And I loved the Festvertrag system. I loved the, the Fest contract um, sort of situation where you have an ensemble of soloists. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're sort of the core, the root of that company. And then you have the guest soloists that come through as well as needed. Um, and it's sort of like a, like a dance company scenario here. Um, and I thought, well, it doesn't necessarily really exist over here in the States. You know, you have some companies like San Jose does it, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is very cool, but um, not really in this city. Um, and what if we really, really embrace that ensemble nature? Um, and at the same time, I was thinking to myself, you know, over the past 
five, six, seven years of working within these small companies, I had met so many very, very talented singers that were also very intelligent, mm-hmm. <laughs> believe it or not. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and also had a lot to say more than just singing. You know, they, they wanted, they had uh, administrative ten- tendencies. Um, we would have conversations about, well, you know, there's this gig I did that one time. And if I was in charge, I would have done this, you know, I wouldn't have wasted everybody's rehearsal time, you know, sitting around like that, I've, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, those, those conversations are inevitable, but they were happening all the time. And so, um, I said, well, we should do something about that. We should, you know, uh, give it a shot. And so we had in March of 2016, we, we, uh, I, made a list of uh, eight folks, well, seven other folks that I had worked with that I felt would be um, into this notion and uh, that were also excellent singers and actors and good people too, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, we had coffee, um, lots and lots of coffees. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we sort of, determined what our ideal company would be um and uh so we formed nco and the idea is that the artistic director um position is is uh fulfilled by committee mm-hmm. by the committee of singers uh of artists so we vote on all programming choices all venue choices any big artistic choices and then we answer to a board as well with independent uh directors um, and so that legally avoids conflicts of interest so we can contract ourselves to perform. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. How many people rotate through that committee uh, for of artistic directors for any given time? It's uh, It started with eight, um, and it's currently seven. Uh, I think eight is a really nice number, but I, I don't know how it will evolve in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I am very encouraged by how it's been working. I think that democracy when it works you know there's a lot to be said about it oh for real um it's i'm very proud of the decisions that we've made the programming decisions we've made in the past three years um as a group and i'm also very very proud of the family the artistic family uh that we've that we've created um we're each other's you know support net and as an artist it's invaluable and um i think that the proof is in the pudding as well. I think that we're I'm, we're all very proud of the work that we've been creating. Um, so it's rewarding. It's rewarding and a little bit addictive. <laughs> oh, I could not like agree with you more in terms of those things. You may not know this, but I started an opera company with my friends back in Chicago. Oh, really? Oh. in twenty fourteen, Chicago Fringe Opera. That's actually how Ellie Kasik and I That's ended right. up meeting. Um, and and you're absolutely right. Like sometimes I think that the best advice you can give any artist is go out, find your tribe and make your own work. Mm, right. Yeah. And I think people don't understand, you know, it's very easy when, when you were in the, the sojourning period of traveling to Germany and singing all over the world. When I was in that period yeah. too, the few years after my professional diploma where you're traveling all over or going after the singing game, it's easy to get your brain in the mode of thinking, how is this going to serve my career? How is this going to serve my mm-hmm. art making? And we can have a very narrow view of that. Mm-hmm. But the thing that turned me into an artist was finding a group of people that I cared about that 
I was responsible to and who they needed me to help make great art and I needed them. And having that real breathing relationship with people to to make art that is greater than yourself changed the way I thought about well life let alone art in, yeah. in and of itself and I Absolutely. think it's, it's an invaluable set of skills that you gain when you're working towards a, a higher common purpose of course absolutely and optics wise you know you have a lot of scenarios here in particularly in this city of you know the soprano who wants to do Tosca and so she casts whomever and they do it in a church basement as my we call those vanity companies back exactly in Chicago. exactly but you know particularly in the in the in the classical music um realm there are lots of people that are kind of trigger happy to call to label something as such yes and um we wanted to avoid that those mm-hmm. optics um so the sort of democratic scenario helps keep keep that in check Additionally, um, we try to work with as many outside people as we possibly can. You know, just like the the German system, yeah, they it won't it won't work unless you have guest artists come in. You know, we can't sing all the roles, <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the the number of things that are written for two sopranos, two mezzos, two tenors, and two baritones just, do, it doesn't, it just doesn't exist. exist. Exactly, yeah, it's true. Um, that being said, we also like to commission a lot of new things, but uh, uh, it, it's it's we need to work with people outside, and we are very happy that you know particularly in this past season we've been able to give lots and lots of outside singers um jobs yeah which is great um and uh they brought something you know the very very exciting voices to our season which we're very grateful for does the the artistic directing committee handle all those casting choices yep that's such a wise thing such a beautiful situation because then you really do get to get to view other people and because you have a responsibility to the company and to each other you get to set that little bit of ego aside and Mm -hmm. really learn things from a different perspective that's so incredibly cool we you know it with casting we also you know we'll work with a given director Mm -hmm. um or musical director for a a certain project as well we're not just gonna be like you have to work with these people but um you know, there's a give and, give and take. But, we, uh, we did the same thing with Fringe. It's always fun to have different collaborators. I know one of the hardest things for us, though, especially when it does get so close, is like figuring out who you can trust, mm-hmm. right? That becomes a big, a bit, uh, honestly, in, in a lot of the, the situations I found myself, that becomes more important than the highest levels of artistic achievement, right? Mm-hmm. Because when you're bringing people into your family, that's very different than just hiring someone for a hermetic job. That's very true. That's very true. And, you know, there's a contract and they're going to be part of your family mm-hmm. for the length of that contract. Um, and you hope that it's that, you know, it will be so successful that they'll come back for another contract. Yeah. <laughs> but there are no guarantees. Yeah. Um, and uh, but, you know, it's a leap of faith every now and then. Um, and that's all the more reason why it's important to have checks and balances and a vetting system mm-hmm. so that we end up working with the right people. But more often than not, we've been very, very uh, lucky. <laughs> That's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I'm sure it's more than luck. But you're right. There is that aspect yeah. to it as as well. So artistically, the the time that I've been aware of New Camerata, it, you seem to be doing projects that are sort of like blending, blending and exceeding the boundaries of what we think of as traditional operatic performance. Was that always something that was important to the creation of the company? Or did that develop over time? Well... The initial um, model is that we're a three-headed beast. So we do our main stage 
full-length operatic performances. And then we do um, operatic short films for digital distribution mm-hmm. on YouTube and Facebook. And then we do children's operas. Um, and it's not just an outreach branch, it's its own initiative. Um, as far as the main stage uh, performances go, the productions that we're seeking out are those that are immersive, those that offer something uh, to the cultural fold of New York that's different than what other companies are offering. Um, we don't believe in competition. We think it's wonderful that there's forty over yeah. 40 New York Opera Alliance companies, but each one has a different voice. Each one has something different to contribute. So we want to highlight something uh, just as unique and different uh, to bring to the table. And um, so we try to work with directors that have really unique visions. We try to employ um, immersive techniques in our uh, performances. And we also try to uh, do it in, in, in venues that are, you know are a little bit off the beaten path, mm-hmm. like House of Yes in, in, in Brooklyn. We did uh, Triskaidekaphilia, which was a horror opera. I don't know anything about this. Oh, this is fantastic. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. That was um, not this this season, but the season prior mm-hmm. in on October 13th uh, and 14th, <laughs> which is less climactic. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was Friday the 13th and then Saturday the 14th. But Triskaidekaphilia, the, the love and obsession over the number 13. And uh, uh it was great. So the the first half of the performance was the medium mm-hmm. uh, by Menotti, and then the second half was uh, Cabaret Macabre, and um, it was great. It was directed by Desiree Alejandro and uh, Whitney George, um, who gets a special shout out because today is her birthday. Today is her birthday. Uh, <laughs> she Happy was birthday, director. Whitney. Happy birthday, Whitney. She doesn't listen to this. That's fine. <laughs> Maybe she will now. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, she was music director and she worked with Desiree to uh, assemble this this great um, selection of art songs, creepy art songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and we and performed them with her ensemble, the Curiosity Cabinet. And uh, it was great. It was just a lot of fun there at House ES's both immersive, creepy, mm-hmm. uh, party like. Um, I've never been to the House of Yes, but it's it's no uh, no simple PG thing, is it? No, no. In fact, uh, immediately after uh, ours, they we had to strike everything. We had to strike every night and after tech and after both the performances, and load all of our stuff into a U-Haul mm-hmm. uh, parked outside. And because they would bring in at 10 p.m. for their own programming, this crazy DJ set and crazy aerialists that are very scantily clad, and uh, it just turns into this rave, you know, sexually positive. Uh, crazy fiesta you know <laughs> it's 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 really quite quite the place yeah it's crazy crazy stuff and it's cool to see opera collaborating into that place as well and i mean you see things like that with like company 14 here in the mm-hmm. city yeah. and a lot of cool things that are really blending into this hyper sex positive very very cool scene of art making here in the city absolutely that's awesome and how like was your board all on board with all of that stuff in the beginning or yeah. did it take some convincing we have we're very lucky to have a um, a pretty hip board um and and flexible and and positive and um uh yeah we're we're very lucky for that board we're continuously growing it um because we we need all the help we can get Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh and advice and mentorship but uh 
but yeah, they've they've backed all of our programming choices 100%. That we've never ever had to deal with any friction there, so we're we're happy about that. That's just so cool. Yeah. And now this new this new production of the Rape of Lucretia that yes. you're putting on seems to be poised to be ridiculously powerful. I hope so. I mean it in rehearsals it certainly is. Yeah. Um it is yeah, directed by B. Goodwin. Um and she uh her her concept was to bring in uh a deaf actress um to play the role of Lucretia alongside uh Mezzo Allison Gish. Mm-hmm. Um basically to highlight that uh often times in the deaf community there are many people that just feel their voices are being stifled um folks with disabilities in general uh their voices are being stifled and uh obviously vast networks of women their voices are being stifled they're being oppressed by men and this is something that's been happening forever obviously this this was written in um well the this was written in 1946 but the original uh story is from an episode that uh, apparently occurred in 535 BC. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been relevant ever since. Uh, so this concept, um, we get to see it in the rehearsal room and it's, it's very, it's very spine tingling you know, and it's very powerful, very striking. Um, so I can't wait to get it. We're loading in to the theater tomorrow. I can't wait to get it up on its feet in the flea. Uh, and, uh, and just dive right on in it's a really really important work and uh i'm proud to say that i think this is going to be a very very important production yeah i'm really excited about it it the rape of lucretia has always been very special to me not only am i just a huge uh, fan of the work of britain and he he had a lot in shaping my tonal characteristics and oh, yeah. my brain functions in terms of that but the rape of lucretia was the first production that we put on with when we really chicago fringe opera yeah. yeah which was just very cool i got to play tarquinius in that which was really oh, crazy what a role uh, oh man talk about some darkness there <laughs> yes. doing that every day and then going going home and trying to like let that fall off of you and be a good husband and a good friend <laughs> yeah. Oof, there's some craziness there but that's one of the things you know it's it's works like this that i think are are really important for our cultural identity Mm -hmm. to be able to embody and experience the problems of humanity so that we can deal with them in healthy ways to to you know boist the good things that exist Mm -hmm. and then really eliminate the negative aspects of what of what we create sometimes absolutely and i don't think you see that anymore come to more fruition than in a in a show like this mm-hmm. and i always love seeing the ways that different portrayals of the story can come out Absolutely. i mean I, I love seeing a good rape of lucretia that's set in period and you get all those crazy costumes there's a different type of beauty that you get from that and there's a different type of emotional immediacy that you get from that when chicago fringe opera did the show we set it in terms of uh, abuse of power in the military oh wow which was really cool but yeah. like then seeing that spread even further with the use of this deaf actress and talking about a, a person's voice literally be taken away from them and show that in a new light i'm mm-hmm. very exciting i've been keeping track of what you're what the company's doing in social media mm-hmm. and i've seen some of those videos of your actress what, what is her name her name is amelia hensley amelia. She's, she's a broadway actress 
years. She mm-hmm. was in um, Death West's uh, Spring Awakening. Oh, okay, very cool. So, like, seeing the videos that that have been posted of her work and the way that she physically embodies the the text, mm-hmm. it's really very powerful. Yeah, she's she's a pro. I mean, we did we filmed that really quickly. Uh, she had just gotten in on a flight uh, late the night prior. And uh, we were doing a little mini fundraiser uh, at the flea mm-hmm. for the rape of Lucretia. Uh, and this was at like 5 p.m. and people were coming at 6.30. And uh, she didn't really know what was up, but I was like, hey, do you mind if we can film a little promo of you uh, doing some signing for one of the scenes for maybe the Orchid Aria? Because um, she had worked, we had worked with Brittany to, uh, would be to uh, uh, stage that a bit for that evening uh, for the performance. So just really quickly, we, we shot like two or three takes and boom. And then I went back and, and uh, loaded it onto Final Cut at home and, and, and watched what she had done. And I was, you know, blown away. I was just like, wow, that she just so immediately accessed that. Um, uh, from that moment on, I was like, this is going to be quite the production. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll find that video and I'll post it in the show notes because it's just crazy. Like... Uh, even as somebody who's lived in that world, the yeah. world of that show, the world of that music, that, that whole thing, like being able to see it in a new light as as physically embodied in a yeah. new way is just so, so powerful. And I can't wait to see all those like little ways that it changes things and shows mm-hmm. new new light on situation. Um, from a practical standpoint, how is that going to function when people come and see the show? Is Allison singing from the pit? No, no. Allison is fully staged. Very cool. Um, and they, they so they're both up on stage. Mm-hmm. Um and uh amelia is pretty much on stage the entire time she is there's a little bit more flexibility in her character mm-hmm. she sort of sees uh em- she feels empathy sometimes with the male chorus and female chorus yeah. um she can sort of view from a different vantage point what is happening with tarquinius like and and the generals beforehand mm-hmm. Um, and sort of see all the uh, events leading up to the eventual rape. Um, and the general concept is that this is what she sees all the time, every day, day in, day out. She is constantly reliving this Woof. in her mind. So that's because that's, you know, yeah. I mean, that's why assault is so damaging because it never leaves you it takes root inside of your soul yeah for real and i hope b doesn't mind that i'm giving spoilers away but that's (laughs) that's the that's the general idea so amelia is on stage pretty much the entire time uh to that effect and allison uh is more literally uh lucretia like in 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 Mm -hmm. waking life essentially um and uh and then they both get involved in in the scenes uh, in in physical ways, and it's uh, you'll have to come and see it. <laughs> Ooh, I'm so excited! It's it's so strange because like, it's 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 always strange to talk about enjoying things like this mm-hmm. because of the heavy nature of them. But as an artist, I really do believe that there is like there is an importance to these kinds of things. And when you do have a master like Benjamin Britten writing this music in a way that 
both opens your soul with its beauty, but then also functions as a delivery system Mm -hmm. for a higher meaning. That's like one of the greatest things that art can do. And I love seeing it happen with this work in particular. I mean, his other shows are the same way. Like Peter Grimes is absolute violence against children. Yeah. He goes there. Like takes you there too. There's so much of that kind of stuff in his music, which is one of the reasons that he is absolutely my favorite composer. But I'm, I'm just so excited to see this production. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, speaking of Owen Wingrave, um, Little Opera Theater of New York mm-hmm. is doing a production of that. Uh, it's actually the New York premiere, which is crazy. Really? Yeah. Uh, in uh, the, the weekend after Lucretia closes. So. Yeah, I, I think I have two friends in that. I think Bernard Holcomb is singing in that, as is Matthew Curran, if I'm not mistaken excellent yeah good, good old opera friends don't you love that yeah absolutely there's so many of them <laughs> it's it's crazy it's i always joke like within the operatic sphere you feel like you're like one in a million but then outside of it you know friends that 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 aren't into opera don't don't know any any better like oh you sing opera in new york yeah you don't know my friend joey <laughs> he yeah. all, you know, he's like a baritone or tenor or something like that you probably know him right <laughs> well, my my funny realization came when you you see that you're only one person away on Facebook from every yeah. other opera singer in the <laughs> yeah, world. Exactly. And it's fun because once you get to, and it's not even that like high level of success. You're like one person away from being friends with Rockwell Blake. It's yeah, like, that's that, pretty like, cool. Happens very quickly. Pretty cool. Because you're right, it is a small world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so shout out the details for New Comrade Opera. Absolutely. So. Uh, Rape Lucretia is going up at the Flea Theater in Tribeca on 20 Thomas Street uh, May 2nd at 7pm uh, then May 4th at 7pm and May 5th for a matinee at 3pm and on Friday May 3rd uh, we have a an, what we call an off night programming um, and it is Leading Ladies Liberated mm-hmm. which is a fantastic uh, program that's coordinated by the group uh, Modern Reveal, uh, which is dedicated to promoting the works of female composers. Um, so this evening will be uh, an evening a, a recital with all female artists, with the exception of our wonderful pianist Eric Sedgwick, um, doing works by all female composers. Um, and I can't wait because um, one of the reasons we we handed it off to a Modern Reveal. Not only because we really value their work uh, very highly, but it was it was also because we had our hands full with Lucretia. Completely so understand. I can't I can't goes. wait to 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 go there as an audience member yeah. and just sit back, relax, and enjoy some in- incredible music. But yeah, good, well, friend of the show and good friend of me, Eugenia Forteza, is singing yep. on that program, which is going to be great. And I didn't know Eric was playing piano for you. Yes, he did. Is Eric involved in New Camarada? Uh, he, well, he works with us a lot. I uh-huh. mean, he we 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 love his playing, and uh, uh, and he's just a fantastic coach as well. Yeah. Um, so it, it's great in having him at rehearsals, and it's great performing with him. We've done many many concerts with him. I've done a few recording sessions with oh, yeah. Eric before since moving here, and he is a spectacular musician. Oh, man, he's insane. Oh, it's yeah. just great. Don't, aren't you, like, sort of jealous and angry at how good some pianists are? 
Yeah, I don't. Well, I just can't even fathom it. Yeah, it just doesn't work, and it just makes me angry because I yeah. don't understand. Exactly. <laughs> so the takeaway is not for us to become better musicians; it's to hate them and make them become worse. Right? There you go. I think that's positive. I think right that's here. healthy. Yeah, that's healthy. That's the healthiest way to deal with that. <laughs> I don't think we need to talk about it any further. <laughs> Check. Uh, so you're singing in this production. Yes. You're singing the male chorus. Yes, I'm singing it uh, on opening night on May 2nd mm -hmm. and also the Sunday matinee and then my colleague uh, Victor Kodadad who is the the other tenor um, in NCO with me uh, another co-founder um, my tenor brother uh, will be singing it uh, on May 4th have you done much Britain before I did I've done Albert Herring twice Aww. I love Albert Which Harry. is like the other side of Benjamin Britten. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's completely different. I, I have a very good friend in Koblenz in Germany. She's on Fest Contract there. Daniel Rohr. Big shout outs. Um, they're doing Albert Herring. They're putting it up right now. And we've awesome. been texting back and forth. He's like... That work is so different from his other Dude. stuff, but it's, I mean, that's hilarious. It's so funny. <laughs> so funny. And that's one of the big shows that like broke my ears open to new, oh, new nice. conceptions of yeah. tonality. I love that show so much. How, how fun has it been digging into the male chorus versus doing a role like Albert? It's, it's been, it's been a challenge. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, for me, it's a lot harder musically. Yes, it is. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a little frustrating because it, it sounds simple, you know, particularly like the, the this section in six eight. Um, it's a very very slow six eight uh -huh. in the beginning where there's a lot of exposition in in, in, in the beginning of the the work and male chorus is basically narrating uh, the circumstances that the generals find themselves in, and uh, it's just this really slow creeping six eight, and all of male chorus's musical entrances are different none of them are symmetrical like sometimes you have to wait 10 eighth notes other times it's uh -huh. three sometimes it's five and a half you know <laughs> and he'll throw those weird like large duple structures at you yep. and not you come not let you come in at the beginning but exactly. you have to come in in like the back half of like an overarching duple structure exactly yeah, it's not not fair at all but but my god the way that the english language falls out of your mouth when you get that stuff oh, right it fits it's just it's perfect. great yeah, it's very satisfying as a performer. <laughs> well, I can't wait. I mean, it's going to be so great to hear you sing all of that stuff. What's next for you after this project? After this project, um, we have two of the Ives Project. Uh, Tell me everything. So <laughs> the Ives Project is a Camerata Works um, uh, project, which we basically recorded nine uh, Ives songs, Charles Ives songs, back in the summer of 2017. And then over three seasons, we decided to set them to uh, short film adaptations. So we've released four of the nine. Um, we released three uh, last season. We've released one of them this season, Thoreau. And then we've already shot the fifth and sixth i cannot believe i didn't know about this before today oh my god you're speaking my language it's a really cool yeah, i love i love this little this little thing um because it gives us lots of it gives us lots and lots of opportunity to uh work within these short little mm -hmm. formats um the director uh is my childhood best friend paul ashy who is an actor and a line producer and a lot of different things but he's got this incredible imagination so it's been very rewarding working with him uh and uh we have one more season of this left so so we have we'll release three more next season mm -hmm. but um i've got we've got two in the can all the footage is in the can but we just have to edit it so 
immediately after Lucretia wraps. That's what we'll be doing. Um, Are you involved in the editing process? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Heavily. Basically, we we team edit uh, Paul and I mm-hmm. um, for these for these short works. They're they're great. They're really small budget, um, but there's a lot of a lot of love and uh, creativity um, and fun. It's basically like every, almost every member of the uh, artistic committee, which is a group of eight, um, recorded one. Yeah and or two in some cases and uh uh we basically get to have little like 24 to 48 hour periods with them um and and shoot the things uh and uh they're very you know diverse uh concepts they uh one takes place in a we work um we shot on like uh lincoln's birthday or something like that yeah. so we had a we work all to ourselves um, another one takes place in the, the the woods of Prospect Park and also at Grand Army Plaza. One takes place out at uh, in Breezy Point, Queens, mm-hmm. my family's bungalow. We just did another for the song Children's Hour, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, my colleague Scott Lindroth sang. And uh, it's all shot in front of a green screen, but we do a lot of really cool little movie magic things. Um, and it's an homage to a bunch of different uh, children's programming. Uh, on 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 television so oh we, 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 we make a nod to uh mr rogers yeah. we have a nod to blues clues uh, you know <laughs> lots of these little things uh how Sesame are Street. we not best friends already <laughs> I think that's we should what be. i'm really not <laughs> understanding here yeah yeah no we, we ought to be yeah that's i'm glad we have this opportunity to talk spectacular yeah so you'll release the rest of those videos this season the rest of the so the fifth and the sixth mm-hmm. and then uh next season the final three um, seven, eight, nine, and then the other Camerata Works project that we're working on is more of an epic scenario. It's the biggest project we've done yet for Camerata Works, um, and it's uh, called Julie, mm-hmm. based on the life of Julie Daubigny. Yeah. Um, which is being written by Whitney George. Happy birthday again, Whitney. Um, composed by Whitney George, and uh, the libretto is by Lila Palmer. Lila Palmer. Yes, I have seen some of the stuff about this. Yeah. Actually, trying to have both Whitney and Lila on the podcast. Oh, fantastic! Talk about all of that stuff Excellent. as well. Yeah, which is really cool. I didn't realize. I, I had known there were some things going on because I actually have a couple of friends working on some stuff about Judy Dobini as well, Excellent. and like seeing all of that stuff come to the forefront right now. Yeah, and so I've been aware of that project. I didn't know it was with NCO. Yeah. How cool is yeah, that? That's yeah, no, and and it's it's a very daunting ambitious project but i think it's a very important one and uh we have um david salazar on his dp Mm -hmm. and uh he's been great he just had a fantastic meeting with our director chloe treat uh who um is directing street scene at uh manas this weekend as well so yeah another opera i love exactly so i'll plug that for her right now as well get get to manis <laughs> and and see street scene she's a she's a brilliant director um so we're really lucky to be working with her um but we're going to be reco- recording the audio to that with uh chamber ensemble in um in august oh that's spectacular. this coming august and then we'll be shooting it over the course of a week in yeah. november yeah where are you recording the audio um still to be determined but most likely uh at the same place we've been recording uh another one of our camarado works projects um, the Prince von Poppenschmier, mm-hmm. uh, which is at a studio called the Ice Plant. Yeah, yeah, in in Queens. 
That's spectacular. Yeah. All of this cool, weird, magnificent art happening. It makes me so happy. Yeah. And that's not even to mention. Then we have the uh, our children's operas through mm-hmm. Camerata Piccola. Um, and we have a whole stable of children's uh, adaptations now that we have that are age appropriate. So we have for early childhood development, Party at the Opera, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that I put together. Um, and it has uh, excerpts from seven different operas by six different composers but you know the standards um and it's so it's it's exposing the kids to this very important rep but in a fun way you know Mm -hmm. we have tenor ted and uh barry the baritone and um it's it's a lot of fun uh and then for elementary school and also late preschool for uh we have uh Peter Rabbit, which was our first offering for mm-hmm. Camerata Piccola, and that was arranged by my colleague Stan Lacey, a fellow co-founder, and uh, it's all music from L'Elysio d'Amore, yeah. and it's uh, so it's these fantastic Donizetti melodies, um, but set to the story of Beatrix Potter's classic tale, um, and it's a lot of fun. The the Nemorino equivalent is mm-hmm. Peter, and uh, so my colleague Victor and I get to sing that and it's strenuous because there's a lot of hopping. You'll be hopping, 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 and then you'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm so out of breath. I have to sing Una Fortiva Lagrima. <laughs> it's like, uh-oh. But, uh, and it's kind of like Nemorino condensed, which yeah. is kind of a hard sing, particularly yeah. at like 9 a.m., you know, at a public school in Yeah, Harlem. you take the, the breaks out of it and you have a little bit of a, a, little bit of a difficult tough. show on your hands. It's tough, but it's fun. And uh, the, the, the kids love it. The kids... Uh, we have three volunteers from the audience come up and, and uh, perform the roles of Flopsy, Mopsy, and Cottontail. Oh, that's lovely. And we have little ears and tails for them. It's unbelievably cute. Yeah. But uh, what is even more touching is when we have the talk back afterwards with the kids and they get to ask us questions and everything like that, or they get to just tell us how they feel about the story or about opera in general. And for the vast majority of these kids, this is the first time they've ever been exposed to an opera at all um, or operatic singing or most don't even know what opera is. Mm -hmm. But it's wonderful because they don't have any misconceptions of the art form. So they learn that it's a story, you know, that it's a form of theater and that it's fun. And they also um, learn that a human is capable of making these huge unamplified sounds uh, in the same room as them, something that they've never experienced before. And the looks on their faces when when, when uh, we first open our mouths and sing something, it's really, really cool. And uh, you see the light bulbs going all over, going off all over the house. And uh, uh, it's great. It's a very, very, very um, gratifying experience. So we have Peter Rabbit, and then we also have... Uh, Rumpelstiltskin, which is for middle schoolers, which all the music from that is drawn from Così Fan Tutte. Oh, I yeah. love that music. Um, it's gorgeous. It's incredible music, obviously. Um, and then uh, we have a few that we're working on. One is a Choose Your Own Adventure Opera, which Stan's working on that one, um, called Wrecked in the Ruin. And then we also have uh, uh, a Romeo and Juliet. Uh-huh. which is going to that's going to be for high schoolers because it uh, basically corresponds to their uh, curriculum yeah, to the New York City Public class. Schools mm-hmm. at, uh, curriculum and uh, it's going to be a little bit more literal so it's going to be taking uh, portions from the Shakespeare mm-hmm. and it'll be spoken 
And then we'll also have portions from uh, the Berlioz mm-hmm. and um, I'm sorry, from the Gounod and from the uh, uh, the Bellini. Bellini? Yeah, yeah Capoletti in Montecchi. Yes, I think that was Victor's idea. Obviously, it's still very much in wrapped up in his mind. Hey, that's I'm the eager. stuff we love seeing seeing new things yeah. happen. That's spectacular. I you know, children's opera has always had like a very special place in my heart. I got to work with the Lyric Opera of Chicago's um, Lyric Unlimited productions. Oh awesome. Uh, and so did a couple of different contracts with them. And they do this weird thing. Well, I shouldn't say that it's weird, but they do this spectacular thing where they won't do compilation aria or co- like compilation operas where you're putting old things together. Uh-huh. Everything that they do now is new commission. So they, that's fantastic. They, like um Dean Burry it wasn't a straight commission, but Dean Burry wrote an opera for children for Canadian Opera Company that, yeah. they, that I got to be a part of with them. Gregory Spears wrote a new opera for them based off Jason and the Argonauts. Oh, and it's fantastic. really cool seeing how you can engage with young people in a very authentic kind of way. Mm-hmm. And it's cool to see you guys doing the same thing. And it's like imbued with that kind of passion and music making. I love that. Yeah. Well, we also, um, we all have all these different strategic battles that... Mm-hmm. Uh, we have assigned to point people um, just to and, and ensure that our mission is being you know taken care of throughout the course of a season. And one of my personal strategic strategic battles that I take responsibility for is um, to foster new works yeah. and 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 relationships with living composers. Um, and we want that to be present across all three of our initiatives: I hear through you. main stage, uh, Camerata Works, and Camerata Piccola. Um, because of the format of Camerata Works, it's it's easier for us to commission uh, new new works for you know short films. Of course, um, you know financially cost effective. Yeah, ex- exactly. But we've got some some plans for uh, full length operatic uh, endeavors um, for 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 new works, and then also um, Camerata Piccolo as well. Because we don't, I, I, we love these adaptations and the the sort of mixing and matching of the different. Um, standard repertoire and, and uh, classic tales but in addition we want to uh, absolutely include some new commissions of children's opera because they deserve you know children as their own legitimate audience deserve their own legitimate new music absolutely i couldn't be more on board with everything that itzio <laughs> is doing this has been so so fantastic i'm i can't wait to see the show and get to know all of you more and get to know the company more i'm i mean i really do believe that what you're doing is at the forefront of what's supposed to be happening in the world of opera right now and it's cool to see all of these things accomplished by people who are skilled and who care and have their brains in the right places so i mean i just am going to applaud the work that you're doing and thank you so much for sharing all of that absolutely thanks for having me it's been fun to talk about this has just been a fun conversation (laughs) needless to say but i'm I'm really glad of all those things where so where can people people keep track of you and new camarada via the internet um so our NCO website is newcameradaopera.org. Um, my personal website is ericbaggertenor.com. Um, but we're all over social media um, under those handles. Uh, New Camerata uh, at Twitter, New Camerata Opera at Instagram, and uh, New Camerata Opera on Facebook. Um, so yeah, find us and get in touch. And we love collaborating and we love having people come and 
hang out and see performances. That's what it's all about. So <laughs> Yeah, and if you come see the Rape of Lucretia this weekend, you will probably see me as well. Fantastic. Yeah. This this has been so much fun. Anything else you want to shout out on the podcast before we let you back to your life? No, I don't think so. I just uh one thing that I'm really encouraged by, particularly this spring, um, is the work that's being done by all these different companies. It's the um just beginning of the Opera Fest, which mm-hmm. is produced by New York Opera Alliance every year. And shout outs to Peter Zip. Yeah, Peter. And <laughs> uh it's just really, really almost overwhelming how many uh you know options that the New York public has for um operatic content. And it's 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 pretty inspiring. So I hope that um listeners will get out there this spring and um go see as many operas as they possibly can because there's a lot of great great things out there yeah i think that kickoff event for this year's festival may be happening right now as we speak yeah at, at the Skorka hall which is really cool but you can go i think we shouted this out on the podcast last week you can go to new york opera alliance's website i can't remember if it's a com or an org so google that shit um mm-hmm. and you can find out they have access to all of the dates all of the companies everything that's happening over the next two months or so it really is a cool hub for how things are happening absolutely we're all in the same boat we're all trying to uh keep opera relevant and build new audiences so uh, it's a it's a really exciting time to be part of the process and in the words of the late zach efron we're all in this together he's not dead he's still <laughs> i was gonna say wait no, he's super still alive <laughs> eric thank you so much absolutely yeah my pleasure this has been great